We're in a series called Ruth, and we're looking for relationship lessons. Have you noticed that relationships, when everything is going well, when all your bills are paid, the kids are getting along, the dog is doing what it's supposed to do, everything's working out, everything is easy. But that doesn't last very long. And if you've been on a honeymoon, if you're married, you've been on a honeymoon, the honeymoon is very short, and then reality begins before you know it. This book of Ruth was written about 3,000 years ago, and it's still applicable to our lives today. And it was during a time period known as the time of the judges. It was before the kings of Israel had been appointed, and it was after Israel had left the wilderness and entered into the promised land. And now it's the time of the judges. And it wasn't a very calm, peaceful time. It was a time when Israel as a nation, but also individual families, were serving God for a short period of time, and then they would see the temptation of the surrounding nations or the circumstances would become difficult or, or times would become tough and they would begin to seek after the false gods of the surrounding nations. And God lovingly would use judges and the surrounding nations to oppress them and then bring back the people with the, the help of the judges back into relationship. And they'll go back and forth and back and forth. And in the book of Judges, chapter number 21, verse 25, the very end of the book of Judges, it explains what's taking place during this time period. And it says, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, I've said this in the previous weeks also, and I'll say it again. When it's just me all by myself, I am absolutely brilliant. Until we find out that maybe, this is hypothetical naturally, I don't know everything. And if you've been married very long, you realize that your spouse will help you understand that you don't know everything. When everyone did that was right in his own eyes. And here we're talking about being proactive. Because no one can be obedient on your behalf. Through the power of God working in our hearts and our lives, we can seek to be obedient. But the word proactive literally means to be ready before something happens. Now, when everything's going easy and smooth, that sounds so easy. But the reality is that life is not easy and life is not smooth. And we see in the book of Ruth, I'm going to give you a quick summary. The chapter number one, verses one through five, Ruth had to face some facts. The facts were life is difficult. Troubled times are going to come. There was a man named Elimelech, he and his wife Naomi. They had two sons and they were living in God's promised land in the city of Bethlehem. But troubled times came. A famine came upon the land and this man was doing that which was right in his own eyes and he came to the decision, there's a famine, I need to provide for my family, there's grain over in the enemy Moabite land, we're going to go head over there, and we're going to go and live there, and then we'll begin to live life, and we'll be able to be fed. And so we have four points there. We see Ruth had to make a choice. She had to face facts. And then some horrible things took place. Elimelech, the father, he died. And Naomi brought her two sons, 
Malon and Chilion, and of course, every kid should be named Malon and Chilion, just lovely names. Then they married Moabite women, which was totally against the law of God. And there was a lady named Ruth, which you kind of get a guess because the name of the book of the Bible is called Ruth, that it's going to be something positive with her life. And there's another lady named Orpah. And these ladies were now married and their husbands die as well. And now they're all by themselves. So you have Naomi and then you have Orpah and Ruth and they are all by themselves. And Naomi says, I'm going to go back to Bethlehem. I'm going to go back home because I'm a foreigner here. I'm going to take my burdens, my hurt and return back home. And she convinces her two daughter-in-laws and trying to convince them, go back to your parents. I have nothing for you. She literally says, I am empty. And in the whole process of that, she changes her name. Her name, Naomi, literally means pleasant. And she changes her name to Mara, which means bitter. And when she's introducing herself, she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me bitter because I left full and I've come back empty. Now, Ruth had to make a choice. She was told, I have nothing for you. There's no hope. There's no joy. There's no peace back in Israel. You don't want to follow me. And she made a commitment to be loyal, not just to Naomi, but she says, your people are going to be my people and your God is going to be my God. She made a commitment to be loyal to Naomi, God's people, but also she said, I'm going to be loyal to God. I'm going to turn away from the false gods of the Moabites. The false gods of the Moabites, their worship was horrendous and disgusting and it involved child sacrifice and demonic worship. It had nothing to do with the things of God at all. And Ruth turned her back on that and says, I'm going to do what is right. And that leads us into chapter number two, where we see that Ruth had to make a commitment to work hard. She had returned back to Bethlehem with Naomi, her mother-in-law. Now she's the foreigner. And God had provided a way of making, uh, of providing for people who were foreigners, who were widows, who were fatherless to provide for themselves. They would be able to go out to the fields and pick up grain that had been dropped. And they could have a little bit of food just to survive. And it required hard work. And Naomi and Ruth made a commitment. They were going to work hard and this is going to be our life now. And God, in the great way that God works, has a great sense of humor. Turns around and, then she, and it says, she just so happened to go into the right field at the right time, and she met a man named Boaz. Now, Boaz just happened to be single and happened to be rich. And God caught Boaz's eye upon Ruth, and he began to talk with her, talk kindly to her, and she returns back that day with the equivalent of 22 liters of grain, which was a huge amount of grain for someone that was collecting it. And she returned back to Naomi, who began the day as bitter and grumpy. And she even calls herself old. And she says, I'm bitter, I'm old, I'm grumpy. And she turns at the end of that chapter number two. Now she's celebrating and blessing God. 
And she says, because Boaz is one of our family members. And she uses the term, he's one of our redeemers, which we're going to look at next week in chapter number four. But this leads us into chapter number three. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Ruth chapter number three. Over the course of this morning, I'm going to read the majority of that chapter, and then we're going to make some application along the way. Because now Ruth has a can-do attitude, and she begins to live can-do, or being proactive. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, that's actually our principle for today. And every Sunday we have a principle that we seek to apply to our life. And I just decided to, to steal Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, and put that as our principle. So our principle is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So the challenge for us this morning is to have a proactive or a can-do attitude. And it kind of rhymes, so it's kind of fun to say, if you want to mutter that under your breath. A can-do attitude. And as we think of our lives, you may have to have had to face facts. Life is hard. Trouble times are going to come. You've had to make a choice of your commitment to be loyal when everyone else around you is seemingly doing wrong, and you said, no, I've got to do right. You may have had to work very hard not knowing what tomorrow is going to bring or if God's even going to provide for you. And you've had made a commitment to be content and just work hard. Well, with that, now we can seek to move forward and be proactive with a can-do attitude. What is the opposite of being ready before something happens? It's actually being reactive and waiting for things to unfold before we respond. So what does that reactive actually look like? Often when I conduct a wedding, and very traditional at weddings, we read a Bible verse, and if you're going to read a Bible verse at a wedding, what do you read? You end up reading 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. And you try to say it in the most loving and kind way, knowing that the couple standing in front of you doesn't hear a word you're saying at all. All they want to hear is, you may kiss the bride and be done. But you are talking about love. Love is patient and kind. And how would it be at a wedding ceremony, if you're sitting next to your, your, your spouse right now, if it was this way, if you will, then I will. If you will be patient and kind, then I will be patient and kind. And it goes on, if you don't envy or boast, then I won't envy and boast. If you're not arrogant or rude, then I won't be arrogant or rude. If you don't insist on your own way, then I won't insist on my own way. If you're not irritable or resentful, if you don't rejoice at wrongdoings or if you, if you promise to rejoice at truth, if you bear all things or believe all things or hope all things, endure all things, then I will. And if your love never ends, then my love will ever end. What a horrible wedding vow that would be. If you will, then I will. But when we live the opposite of proactive, when we live reactive, actually that's exactly what we're living. We're living, if you do it, I'll do it. If you promise, then I'll promise. It's a recipe for relationship failure, not just in the marriage relationship, but in every aspect of our relational life. Try driving and saying, if you stop at the stop sign, then I'll stop at the stop sign. If you give way, then I'll give way. 
If you don't speed, I won't speed. What does it look like when we live reactive? We end up blaming others for our action or our inaction. We blame others for the choices that we make. We see that right in the beginning of the Bible. And you think, well, that's not me. Well, do you know what? That's just human nature. In in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, we see Adam and Eve and their original sin. And what do we see when God comes and speaks to Adam and Eve? Adam instantly says, this woman that you gave me. Now, I believe me, it actually, that's a very tempting, very tempting accusation to make against God. God, this is all your fault because you gave me this woman. Now, don't try that at home because that will not lead to success in your relationships. But that's exactly what takes place and it's a natural way of responding. But we're not called to live naturally, are we? We're called to live supernaturally. So if I can talk to men and women uh, separately a little bit here. Blaming your spouse for not taking your responsibility is incredibly unattractive. And it will lead to failures in our relationships. You try blaming your teacher at school, blaming your boss at work, blaming your friends, blaming others, even blaming God. It's a recipe for failure. So therefore, we're going to seek and discover in Ruth chapter number three, three different ways that we can live proactively. And there's three points you have and you're in your bulletin. If you wish to look in your bulletin, the three points are be proactive. It's preparation, submission and anticipation. Preparation. We see in Ruth chapter number three, we're going to read verses one through five. Then Naomi Her mother-in-law said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? In other words, I'm going to seek the best interest for you. We're going through a hard time right now, and I'm going to seek the best for you. That it may be well with you. Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor, which I'll talk about in a few minutes. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. And, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies and then go and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what to do. And this is Ruth's reply. And she replied, all that you say, I do. I'm assuming this was kind of a happy, joyful conversation with a lot of anticipation. And as she's talking here, she's not talking and saying, all right, go wash, go change clothes, go anoint yourself, whatever. I know there was a sense of excitement and anticipation in this conversation. Because if you read and you look at verse number three, you'll see it's not talking about just regular getting ready for things. This is actually something that we can make some spiritual application from, but it's also the way that a person would prepare or a lady would prepare for her future husband. She's in a very real way getting ready and dressing as if she was going to be married. And we can make some spiritual application for our lives. I'm going to go through this really quickly because I could almost have three sermons in this one sermon today. First of all, we see washing. The washing there is a picture of the cleansing from sin. 
It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. We see, what are those promises? Those promises are actually in 2 Corinthians chapter number 6. And he goes, because we have these promises, now we're going to be washed clean as a result. When we choose not to prepare ourselves, when we choose not to allow God to cleanse us and to wash us, we come into relationships bringing all the junk of our past. We bring along all the, in a very real way, the rubbish of our past. In a, in a, in a way it's saying, here I am in my newfound relationship along with my pornography, along with my bad habits, along with my anger, along with my gossip, along with my drinking, along with my abuse, and we carry it along into our new relationships. And that's not the way we're called to be at all. It says here, wash. And as believers in Jesus Christ, we don't have to carry that around. We can be washed clean. It says in 1 John chapter number 1, verse 9, how do we cleanse ourselves? It's simply through confession. If you know Christ is your Savior, this is a verse that we can daily live as we cleanse ourselves before God. And it says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just. We come to God and say, God, quite literally, it's me again. And what does it say there? He is annoyed and tired of hearing our excuses and our sin again. Is that what it says? Not at all. He says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from most of our unrighteousness. What does it say? It says all unrighteousness. So we can know that we can be cleansed from sin in our preparation. Well, to be proactive it means I'm going to cleanse myself. I'm going to allow God to forgive me of these things and move forward. I'm not going to bring into my relationships all the junk of my past. I'm going to allow God to forgive me and move forward. And then we see the word anointing. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Anointing speaks of the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 1 John chapter number 2, verse 20. It says, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. The anointing is literally like a perfume or a, for men, a cologne. A number of years ago, I was given a cologne as a gift, and I really liked the smell. And I would spray it on myself, thinking that I would impress my wife with how good I smelled. Come to find out, it took Tammy a while, but she finally admitted to me, Michael, I hate that smell. And she even used the word hate. I hate that smell. Now I have a choice. Do I continue to anoint myself with the cologne my bride hates? Or do I seek to smell the way that she wishes me to smell? And so my response was, well, I have no idea what you like, so therefore buy me a cologne for Christmas and I'll wear it. I, I smell good today, don't I? And similar with the Holy Spirit. We come to the Holy Spirit, we come to God and say, God, here I am. Here's how I'm going to smell before you. Here's what I'm going to do in your power and your strength. And in the reality, it's not that way at all. It's the other way. The Holy Spirit comes into our life and guides us and molds us and shapes us. And we turn around and say, God, how do you want me to smell? 
How do you want me to prepare myself? And it's a totally different way of looking at life. Rather than us having to come up with all the answers. Because during this time period, everyone did that was right in their own eyes. And that's not the way to live. How would your relationships be between you and God, but also between you and others, if you allowed yourself to, in a sense, spiritually smell the way that God wants you to smell? If you allowed the Holy Spirit to prepare and to work in your heart and your life to mold and shape the opportunities that you no longer have to come up with all the ideas and all the answers, God will work in and through you to guide us and mold us and shape us. We don't have to tell God how we're going to smell. There's an author and a man who actually he died over 60 years ago named A.W. Tozer. And he, has, he made this quote. If God were to take the Holy Spirit out of this world, much of what the church is doing would go right on. Nobody would know the difference. That's a very hard-hitting, impactful statement. Because nothing we do at Southwest Baptist Church of any success or of any note is in our own strength and our own ability. It is only through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we've seen that lived out time and time and time and time again. But if God was to remove the Holy Spirit, would we notice? I would like to say we would, but would we? So in our preparation, we are washing, we are anointing, we're also dressing. That is the new life that we live in Jesus Christ. That's the removal of the old mourning clothes and putting on of the new clothes. You see, Ruth would not have had an extensive large wardrobe. But what tradition would tell us would be that they would have their mourning clothes and she would walk around and everyone would know by the way that she was dressed that she was a widow. But they also understand that tradition would be that they would have a garment that would be their celebration or their festival garment. She took off her mourning clothes, mourning for her husband, and she put on her festival clothes and prepared herself. That's much like the prodigal son. When the prodigal son returned to the father, the father came and put on the new clothes around him. It says in Luke 15:22, and the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put on a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. The clothing represented his status and who he was and what he was doing. In the Christian life, we need to take off the old clothes, the old clothes of mourning. Or maybe another way of saying it is the grave clothes and allow God through the Holy Spirit to work in our life to help us to live the new life. This is in our preparation Lazarus had to do that. Lazarus, of course, was dead in the book of John, chapter number 11. It tells of Jesus Christ coming and raising Lazarus from the dead. And Lazarus at that time was wrapped in grave clothes. And he didn't remain in his grave clothes forever. In John, chapter number 11, verse number 44, it says, The man who had died came out, that's Lazarus, his hands and feet bound with linen straps, and his face, basically, if you can imagine a mummy, that's kind of what he probably looked like. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, we no longer have to live the old way anymore. We are now washed. 
We are now anointed. We are now dressed differently in the ways of Jesus Christ. And now our preparation is prepared. Now we can go out and live life that he's asked us to live. In that preparation, there's washing and anointing and dressing. And you may think to yourself, I don't have time for all that. And this morning, I have a very short video that I want to show that talks about time and priorities and putting things into perspective. These are roughly 28,835 jelly beans. I counted out 500 of them and used those to weigh the rest. In this pile, there's one jelly bean for each day that the average American will live. You might have more beans in your life, or maybe less, but on average, this is the time we have. Here's a single bean. It's your very first day. A special day, but kind of a rough day on everyone involved. Add 364 more and you have the first year of your life. Now, for a sense of scale, here are your first 15 years. 5,475 days which brings us to the threshold of adulthood. And at that moment, this is the time that we have left. And this is, on average, what we will do with all that time. We will be asleep for a total of 8,477 days. If we're lucky, some of that time we'll be sleeping next to someone we love. We will be in the process of eating, drinking, or preparing food for 1,635 days. We'll be at work, hopefully doing something satisfying for the equivalent of 3,202 of those days. 1,099 days will be spent commuting or traveling from one place to another, maybe a little bit more if you live in LA. On average, we will watch television in one form or another for a total of 2,676 days. Household activities like chores and tending to our pets and shopping will take another 1,576 days and we will care for the needs and well-being of others, our friends and family, for 564 days. We'll spend 671 days bathing, grooming, and doing all other bathroom-related activities, and another 720 days will go to community activities like religious and civic duties, charities, and taking classes. After we remove all those beans, this is what remains. This is the time that we have left. Time for laughing, swimming, making art, going on hikes, text messages, reading, checking Facebook, playing softball, maybe even teaching yourself how to play the guitar. So what are you going to do with this time? How much of it do you think you've already used up? If you only had half of it, what would you do differently? What about half of that? How much time have you already spent worrying instead of doing something that you love? What if you just had one more day? What are you going to do today? As you consider that, you think, I, I hope that I have more than one day left. You think about a year, there are 8,760 hours in a year. And if you just average out even just church attendance or anything that you do for one hour, but I use church's attendance as one, if you were attending every single Sunday, it's only 52 hours a year. If you look at it percentage-wise, it's, uh, it's less than 0.6 of your year is spent in church. It's less than 1%. In fact, it's just over half a percent of your year is spent in church if you were here every single Sunday. 
And it's amazing when we prioritize out and look at our lives. We look at Ephesians chapter number 5, verses 15 through 17. It says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. We're called to be proactive. We first of all looked at preparation. Secondly was submission. During this harvest season, what would take place is they, they would have the, all the different family groups would harvest their fields. And normally what they would have on the top of a hill or in a very windy area, they would have a communal threshing floor. And all the people would bring their, their harvest, and this time it was barley, and they would bring their grain, and they would begin to thresh it out. And at the end of the day, when the breeze would come out, they would throw the grain in the air, and the chaff would go away in the wind, and the grain would fall to the ground, and they would collect it, and then they would begin the process of grinding and preparing it into flour. All of that was a very, very hard day. You're in the fields all day, and then you're, you're, you're preparing in the threshing floor at night. It was a huge community gathering. At the end of the evening, you would have your grain, and you would sleep next to it because you didn't really trust your neighbors. And that's what's taking place here in Ruth 3, verses 6 through 9. Now, Ruth has been told, go wash and anoint and clo- um, clothe yourself and go down and go and meet Boaz. And it says in verse 6, So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and laid down. Now verse number 8, you have to read with a little bit of emotion here because this guy is tired. He calls himself an old man, okay? So he's not a young teenager. He's an older guy. He's been working all day long. He probably hit that grain of of barley and hit it and fell asleep really fast. And it says, at midnight, so he's a deep sleep. The man was startled. Now, I have no doubt that Boaz was a manly man, but if you startle any manly man at night, we go, "Ah!" And I am sure he went, and and, and then he tried to compose himself very quickly. And he says, and the man was startled. He turned over and behold, the last thing he expected, a woman lay at his feet. And he says, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. When we hear the word submission, oftentimes we misinterpret that word as meaning oppression. But submission and mutual submission in a relationship brings great strength. You cannot have two people saying we're going to be together in a relationship and um, be opposed to each other. You need that mutual submission. What Ruth was asking Boaz to do was, first of all, Ruth was saying, I'm going to submit to you by saying, will you redeem me? She's being very vulnerable at this time and asking in in a submissive way, will you be my husband? Will you redeem me? What she was asking here was going to take time. It was going to take money. It was going to take emotion. And she's asking this at midnight when the guy's just woken up. And what she's also asking when she says here, you are a redeemer. She's asking Boaz to submit to God's law. 
She's saying, will you follow the law and submit to the law because you are a redeemer? You're one here who can actually purchase me back. And that doesn't sound like a slave. It's a different sort of, of concept here. Will you pay my debts? Will you bring me into your family? And that submission that Ruth had gave her two things. First of all, it gave Ruth a new name. She had a new name. She is now called, she calls herself your servant. Previously in this book, she was described as Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabite. She was carrying around a title of, hello, I'm a foreigner. Hello, I'm the enemy. Hello, I'm the people who didn't follow God at all. It doesn't follow God at all. That's who she was. Her new title is, I'm your servant. And it goes on and it says that she has now a new relationship. Her new relationship is redeemed which we're going to go in more depth next week about that. She, she asks a very big question. That's, she, she says, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. That terminology of spread your wings has a double meaning. First of all, it's much like a, a mother hen carrying and protecting in the, underneath the wings of protection of a mother. But it also has the, the double meaning of Put your garment over me and cover me. It's a symbol of saying, will you be my protector? Will you be my guide? And even in modern day tradition of Jewish weddings, in a, in a Jewish wedding in the tradition, what they, they have is the bride will give the groom a woolen talit, it's called. And there's a picture on the screen of that. And that's, that's over their shoulders. And during the ceremony, the Jewish ceremony, they'll take this talit, which is a shawl, like a prayer shawl, and they'll put that over the two of them together, which is in symbolizing them being together, but also be her being under the protection of the talit, or being under the protection of her husband. You see, that's exactly what Jesus Christ has done for us. There's no way we can save ourselves from our sins. There's no way we could ever be good enough so therefore, we must submit to the salvation of, of God through Jesus Christ. And exactly what Jesus Christ did. Just like for Boaz, this submission was going to cost him time and emotion. And financially, it was going to cost him. It cost Jesus Christ something to save us. In the book of Galatians 3, verse 13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. How did he do that? He died on the cross from our sins. Now Ruth, she's woken up Boaz, woken up with a start, and you can imagine Boaz hearing that, and I'm sure, this is just me talking now, this is just, in a, just, just a guess, that Ruth probably blurted all this out really fast. And he's like, whoa, what has just happened here? He rubs his eyes. He's, he's clearing his throat a little bit before he responds. And we see in verse number 10 through 14, and he said, you know, <coughs> Whoa, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made the last kindness greater than the first, that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. Here's what she wants to hear. How long does she have to ask, await for a response? I will do for you all that you ask. You can imagine her heart going, oh, 
for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And then he begins to address the fact that he's a redeemer. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he was not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before anyone could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. In other words, keep this a secret. And then he goes and measures out. Remember the other day, she came back with 22 liters, and I don't know how she carried this, but he, he said, get your skirt and lift your skirt up a little bit, and I'm going to put some, some grain into it. And he ends up giving twice as much, the equivalent of 44 liters of grain. She, let me just speak practically. She's going like, thanks a lot, Boaz. <laughs> like, and she carries this back to her mother-in-law. And that leads us into the final is the anticipation. Do you think Naomi slept at all that night? You think the anticipation of what's Boaz going to say? How is he going to respond? We did our part. We prepared. We're submitting. Now we are anticipating. And it says in verses 16 through 18, And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? She told her all that man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. And he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And here's verse 18 is the key. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. In a very real way, this is what Naomi is counseling Ruth with. She's saying, wait with anticipation. You've done your part. You are proactive, you prepared, you submitted, and now we are waiting. But we're not sitting back going, oh, whatever. It's waiting with anticipation. God, how are you going to work in this situation? How are you going to provide here? In Psalm 37, verse 5, it says, commit your way to the Lord. Another way of saying that is be proactive. Do what it is that you're called to do. Trust in him, and what does it say? And he will act. Waiting is very hard. If you want a success strategy, learn how to wait. And that's not just men saying, I'm going to wait when I go to the shops and find that comfy chair outside the shop and, and sit there until my wife is done. That may be the waiting, but that's not really what we're talking about. It's not waiting and going, hurry up. That's not the waiting we're talking about here. The waiting is the sense of anticipation. What is God going to do? I'm not going to move forward or backward until I hear how God's going to act here. We see that in Psalm 46, verses 1 and verse 10. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Then he says, be still and know that I am God. On Friday night, the youth had their up upstairs, they have a youth Bible study. They're going through Alpha. It's called Alpha Youth. And at the very end, they were talking about prayer. And they quoted a lady named Corey Ten Boom. And Corey Ten Boom had gone through the Holocaust. And she has a tremendous story. And she's a Christian author. And she's a real encourager. But she said this. When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, 
you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. With being proactive, proactive means being willing to wait for God to act. That's exactly what took place. And come back next week, we'll look at chapter number four, and you're welcome to read ahead because it's a great story. But my encouragement to you is be proactive is in our preparation, in our submission, and our anticipation. And why do we be proactive? Because you are part of something bigger and greater than just yourself. And as we close this morning, you have a choice now how, how you're going to respond. And maybe there's areas in your life where you've gone and going, you know what, I've been really reactive. I've been reactive to my children, reactive to my spouse, reactive to my work colleagues. I want to now live proactively because I recognize I'm part of something bigger and greater. And God's in the preparation stage in your life, or maybe you're in the submission stage, or maybe you're in the wait and anticipation stage. But whatever area of your life, you recognize that God is continually working in our hearts and our lives.